This is a CBC podcast. Montreal can feel like a place from a different time, a place that seems to remember the past in a different way. A few years ago, I moved from Toronto to Montreal. I hadn't seen my apartment before moving in, which was a bit scary, but once I walked in, I loved it. The place had barely been touched since the 60s. It came furnished with pink velvet furniture, ornate rugs, linoleum, and my favorite, the floral glossy wallpaper. So much wallpaper. For me, this move was a big one, a big leap of faith. I worried about not knowing how to navigate my new city, about making new friends, and I really worried about not being fluent in French. But as I explored my new city, I began to feel more at ease. Everywhere I went, I saw secondhand shops, vinyl record stores, and places to get things repaired. It's like... Montreal has this charming culture of reinvention, taking things that could have been forgotten and forcing you to notice them in a new way. I'm Phelan Johnson, and this is Hell of a Story. love my vinyl. I recently just started collecting. Secondhand records come with so much history. It's like they've lived whole other lives before they find their way to my record shelf. There's kind of a romance in the process of listening to vinyl, selecting an album, being caught up in the cover art, laying the needle on the disc just right. It slows you down, causes you to savor it a bit more. It's kind of the same thing with analog film, which is also going through a revival. In cities like Montreal, people pack into indie cinemas to see movies on old film projectors. Montrealer Robert Miniacci is a key part of this revival. Our producer Craig Dessen first saw him at a film night at a loft space in Montreal. Craig was mesmerized by Robert. The care and joy this man took in the act of projecting film, well... It seemed pretty special. Turns out Robert says he's one of very few people in Montreal who not only knows how to use these old machines, but how to get them up and running. So Craig went to his studio to see the master at work. There's virtually parts of every single 16-millimeter projector ever built. This is the lens collection that I, I have, about a thousand lenses that I'm going to show you. <laughs> you oh, it's too, ba- it's too bad you can't film some of this stuff. How many people are there out there who do what you do? Most of them are either retired or not doing it anymore. I'm really the only one. Robert Miniacci's life work is preserving film projectors. Those old entertainment machines that in a bygone era lit up movie screens by blasting light through strips of celluloid 
Robert may not be the only person in Canada with the know-how to repair these machines, but he's certainly among a select few. So I've come to visit Robert to understand why we still need film projectors. I'm inside the garage of Robert's suburban home on Montreal's West Island. This is strictly optical, but the other one is mag as well. The space is crammed with projectors and their parts. In the middle of the garage sits a 16mm Ike projector. Once upon a time, teachers would roll in an Ike when they wanted to show their students a film. By using his garage door as a projector screen, Robert proceeds to demonstrate to me how this projector works. So now what I'm doing is I'm connecting a 16mm projector. And in this case, I'm threading it manually, but it can be threaded automatically as well. Like a lot of people like to come and actually sit next to it because they love to hear the rhythm of, of the movement of the machine. What I love, uh, of, first of all, the interaction, the fact that you have total control. You, whatever you want to do to it, it's there. You know, I can advance it one frame at a time, playing with an actual image. And you see the image, and what you see is that. You're visually seeing it. You're not dealing with a mysterious encoded box. So it lends to creativity. As he threads the Ike, it's fascinating to watch his hands. Robert's hands move quickly around the projector. There's precision to how he threads the projector, adjusts the knob, or splices a film. Across from the Ike projector is a digital projector the size of a suitcase, the kind used now in movie multiplexes. And this is the new system that is used in cinemas today. It's called a DCP digital using a server, etc. This one is one of the smallest in the industry. So it's about, uh, weighs about 100 pounds, and it's about three feet long, uh, black in construction. And I say it's going to destroy the theater experience because the distinction is no longer there. You see, that, that's the whole thing. You, you go home and you have, you have video. You go to the theater and you have video. So it becomes less of a reason for people to go to the theater because there's very little distinction. The digital, what it has, it has a medical technical quality to it. That, in my opinion, does not lend itself to the artistic creativity that film still offers in all, in all ways. Robert sees the special power of analog images all over the place. For example, he remembers showing his kids and their friends movies in the basement of his house. I would bring home the Disney films in 16mm. I have a screen, I have a screening room downstairs with beautiful, with a, all set up with an electric screen, lights, the whole works. Okay. And there would be 30 kids down there, and they would watch the entire film in total fascination with the projector projecting in the background. Okay. Whenever we showed a video, they would all walk out and they'd be running all over the place. Whereas with film, they would just be stuck there the entire time. In the cinema, when you're looking at it and you're looking at film, you have that sense of believability, that you're actually transported into something that you're not here. When you say there's... um like a life to analog. Like, what are the what are the qualities of this this life? The most important thing is mechanical movement. You're actually seeing motion, and I go back to the early meaning of when film started, which they called it motion pictures. So 
that became like the magic box that you can actually take individual pictures and give motion to it. Okay, And then not only is it motion pictures, but you have motion transport. Okay, So that's... So you're actually seeing life in action as opposed to something static. And I think that's a very big attraction because if we're looking at life, things are in constant state of motion. Whereas we're looking at the universe, we're looking at everything. What is it all about? Everything is motion. Robert fell under the spell of projectors as a child when he got his hands on a slide projector, which is a little machine used to project photographs on a screen. I was born in Italy. I had uh, only seen films outdoors. I had never been inside a movie theater until my dad took me to a movie theater. And the image just struck me. I was so fascinated by that, what I saw on screen. So then I became obsessed with with, uh, projectors. I built my first slide projector uh, when I was was 12. I wanted a Kenner Give a Show projector. It was a toy projector that showed slides. It had little slides of, uh, of cartoons. Okay, And I wanted it badly when I was a kid. But Italian parents, if you asked them for a toy, you would get slapped. <laughs> so I decided to build my own projector. And I made it out of toilet paper rolls and discarded rolls from Alcan foil and so on. And I, and I used a reflector from a flashlight. Made a tube to put in the batteries and build my own lens by buying magnifying glasses and putting it with, with glue, etc., to create a lens that would in and out of focus. And then my parents looked and said, hmm, we should have bought. I said, I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> I said, I had a lot of fun making this. And, and I still have it. The dungeon that was supposedly a temporary... Uh, for Robert also invites me to a second space he has for repairing projectors. He calls the dungeon, which I'm being led into. It's in the basement of a rundown strip mall, not far from his home. The basement has a low ceiling, and it's a labyrinth of projectors, their parts, and film reels. As he says, he's also one of the few people still repairing these old projectors, a business that seems hopelessly out of touch with technology. But despite all signs of pointing to the demise of film, he has more business than he knows what to do with. As digital technology becomes ubiquitous, a new generation is rediscovering the allure of analog film. He's shipping out his projectors around the world. Where I set up projectors would be in museums, galleries, Whitney Museum, Mocha in L.A., Tate in England, Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, Walker Art Center in Minnesota. Those are like very large clients. Oh, I also did uh, an installation for um, uh, Dennis Hopper. He had a, a, a gallery in Santa Monica and I built six projectors for him. This, the Yaiki is, is the projector of choice because it was so beautifully designed. Business, in fact, keeps picking up. He recently provided a projector to the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences for one of their cinemas in Los Angeles. Plus, a new generation of artists is rediscovering the allure of film projectors, so they need Robert too. I actually met him at a Montreal loft where he was setting up a screening for a group of young artists who work in film. So now the issue with Robert's projector business is that he can't go on forever. I actually had to slow it down because I'm alone. 
Okay, and 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 my uh, other people are also like I said, they're not they're not able to work like they used to work because they're in their eighties. Some of them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and it's only because of my insistence that they're still doing it. <laughs> and and because they love it, because they love it, like uh, they have the same passion for it. But they're also cursing me <laughs> and say, "When are you going to stop?" I'm limited by the fact that it, uh, COVID and everything else uh, created a, a very bad situation in that you know you can't hire people. Plus, the fact is, um, I'm boxed into a thing where uh, the experience I have is is in a sense so unique that it's very hard to transfer it onto somebody who has 40 years of being able to figure out the, the exact millimeters of the claw protrusion to make sure that it's absolutely perfect and so on. I do have a, a plan in place that I want to, you know, hopefully get this knowledge transferred to, to younger people. What will it mean if you retire one day? <laughs> the same question was asked when I was doing a lecture at the Smithsonian. They asked me that question. Well, I said, well, you're, you're giving me an incentive not to retire and not to die. <laughs> I said, well, I'll have to find a way to live forever, I guess. I said, thank you very much. That doc was produced by Craig Dessen with Julia Poggle. I'm Phelan Johnson, and this is Hell of a Story. In our next doc, we're staying right here in Montreal to hear about a set of ancient instruments looking for a new life. do with a bunch of old church bells that weigh more than an F-150 pickup truck. That's the problem Montreal's Sacre-Cœur de Jésus Church was trying to solve, or risk losing the bells for good. So, how do you give new life to something that was created for one thing, and one thing only? Here's Simon Nakoneshny's documentary, Old Bells, New Sound. It was uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. I lost like every other artist or composer or any, anyway, uh, all of my work. Tack. And at the same time, I just received that news, the tower bell is going to be destroyed, uh, you know. Wow. My name is André Papatama. I'm a composer, choir director at the Sacré-Cœur de Jésus Church uh, in Montreal. So uh, we have to destroy it, and when you destroy it, the bells, it's, they sail it, they, they put it on the field out of town, and that's it. So to me, it was uh, too much. Wow. And I, I called at l'Archeveche, and I knew uh, the, the many years uh, Monseigneur Dufresne, and uh, I proposed him, hey, why don't install the bell in, in the church? Roger Dufresne. I'm pastor of this parish. It's a crazy idea, but I like crazy ideas. 
so it suited me fine. So we look at the possibilities and the cost, obviously, because it's more expensive to bring the bells inside than to leave them outdoors. But I thought of it as a way of embracing the whole adventure with the bells. L'aventure des cloches. Et puis en même temps, c'était très symbolique. And at the same time, it was very symbolic. Autrefois, on avait une paroisse de 4000-5000 At one time, we had a parish of four or five thousand people, easy. But there were big apartments here, with big families, so more people came to church. Now, there's a lot fewer. We were maybe about 20 people at Mass on Sunday. So for sure, we need to find new ways to express our faith and to create a connection with people. We saw the first bell arrive in the sky and the top of the, the, the crane, the, the, the arm of the crane, and she, she was like an angel in the, the sky. It was a blue sky, marvelous day, you know. And we saw that bells, it, and very slowly that arrive in the, sur le parvis, just in front of the, the church. And to me, it was the real beginning of that project. It's like, uh, you know, we, we open the cage and like, it's like uh, birds who c come out. First time I actually heard these bells in this space was when I came here for the the first rehearsal that I had. I'm Adrian Foster. I'm an organist and composer based in Montreal. It was just Andre demonstrating all of the different timbres and tones that you can get out of just one bell, and of course, there's thousands more to be discovered still. Fa sol la, and here you have an A. So they're all mounted on these wooden platforms that are, are very nicely custom designed to support these bells, because of course each one of these bells weighs an incredible amount. But to have not just one of them, but five of them, and they're sort of lined up on each side. So uh, if you're walking down toward the high altar on the right-hand side, there's two bells. On the left-hand side, there's three other bells. If you just take the bells, it's like a personage. You have over on the top, a crown, and you have just under the crown the, the brain, and after the brain, the shoulder, after you have the dress, and here at the, the bottom, it's like la pince. Uh, la pince, it's like a little belly. Elles sont bénies. They're blessed. They're blessed, thank you. And at this time, we decide for each one a name. What's this one's name? This one, it's Anne-Marie. The first time I heard them in the moment of really creating a piece of music with a group of people would have been the, the first time we had a rehearsal here with, uh, with three percussionists, with two singers, with the organ, and to hear them in that context as a chamber instrument, essentially. 
it's something really special because on the one hand because of how unique it is but on the other hand because of just the way that they resonate in this incredible space I think this space is absolutely a catalyst for creativity. I know any time that I mention kind of what's going on here or any time that I've had friends and colleagues who come to these concerts, the reaction is one of real amazement. The people, it's like for them you can see, it's like a little poetic moment. You know, it's when, like, people look at the star. The person look at the bells and for a moment they are just in peace. The sound is, it just, you know, it fills the room. It, it uh, wow, I, I, I don't know, I didn't really think of... I didn't really think of putting it to words. I think it takes time to process as well. Like uh, the, It's really profound, these sounds. They really touch you and they, they really bring you to the present. The church got to find for each one a new vocation. You have the religious one, cool, but you need another one. Like here, you have concert, we have some workshop. Uh, you, you, the, the people around start to understand, hey, okay, you can go over there. It's, it's a place for music. It's the place with the bells in. It's, you know, like if you have a look at the exposition around the bells, you don't have that feeling to be with the little Jesus. These bells have called generations of people to gather there. Maybe today fewer people feel the call, but maybe now they can serve to rediscover a way of bringing people together from a musical point of view. Because I'm a big believer in music, I think beauty brings us closer to God. La beauté, ça, ça nous élève vers Dieu. The bells continues to call the peoples uh, to be together. They was in the top of the bells tower to, to call everybody, and now they inside the church and they continues to call. They always call. Listen, we have that to, to tell you. We have a lot of things to tell you that we never have chance to tell you because now it can be very pianissimo, very softly. The next concert I'm gonna work with some pieces very low volume just to hear what they have to say in secret. That doc was produced by Simon Nakoneshny with Craig Dessen. And that's it for this week's Hell of a Story. The show is produced by Tanera McLean, Julia Poggle, and me, 
We're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. And hey, if you like what you're hearing on Hell of a Story, why not hit subscribe, save to your favorites, or tell a friend about us? We'd really appreciate it. I'm Phelan Johnson. Nyawagoa, and thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.